Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Before this episode of the Final Word podcast, a quick update on all things Final Word. Adam and Jeff have been busy covering the England versus India test series. It's a daily wrap-up of the day's play. Make sure you check out the Final Word on YouTube. You can watch all of the daily eps there. The Final Word has joined the Acast family. We are grateful for Acast's support. They're helping us produce this show for you each week. Thanks for your patience while we moved everything over to Acast. And if for some reason you missed an episode during this process, you can find everything at finalwordcricket.com. Last but certainly not least, our naming rights sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Thank you, Brick Lane. Check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram, Facebook, and on their website, bricklanebrewing.com. Now, we've told you about all their great beers, their trilogy of Fear, The Backyarder, The Draft, The One Love Pale Ale, The Lager, and their low-alcohol option Sidewinder Hazy Pale. They are all available at bricklanebrewing.com. Now, let's say you're a longtime listener to the show, but a first-time consumer of Brick Lane's finest. The team at Brick Lane have you covered. Check out the merch section. Pick up the Brick Lane Discovery Pack. It's a sampler of their finest brews. Or get ready for Father's Day with the Crafty Dad Pack, or the Grab Dad a Coldy Pack. There are so many options. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Story time. A cricket podcast that ventures into history. A cricket podcast with me, Jeff Lemon, 
and uh, with another person, Daniel Norcross, who is playing the role today of Adam Collins. Daniel will be filling in for the matinee session while Adam is resting his vocal cords for the evening stint. Um, it's story time. This is where we get into the uh, the depths, the realms, the, the far distant reaches of cricket history. And, and this is a place, Daniel, where I know, I know you like to go on your own, if need be, with others if you can. But today, you get to go there with an audience. I'm sort of thrilled. I'm a bit like a, a chinchilla on his wedding night, shaking with such tremendous mm-hmm. anticipation. I cannot tell you. You've, you've set me homework and everything. I was lying in bed this morning mm-hmm. and I've got like, I've got pages and pages in front of me in, of scrawled nonsense. I've gone into places I never thought I'd go to. You're going to hear about Christmas trees, enormous mm-hmm. Christmas trees, world record breaking Christmas trees later. That's a little spoiler alert. Excellent. But yeah. Okay. All right. I need to drop something back by you that you wouldn't be aware of because when Adam and I were on the show the other week, we were speaking about uh, Tom Kendall, who played the first Test match in 1877, and we were wondering whether he would have the record for the highest percentage of first-class matches in his career being Test matches because he played two Tests among eight first-class games, Mm -hmm. thus 25% of his career first-class matches were tests. Now, I have to apologise to my correspondent because I can't remember who sent me this. Somebody did, and I've gone back through all of the messages and I can't locate where it came from, but somebody has pointed out, one of our regular listeners on the final word, that Rashid Khan, in the current era, has played nine first-class matches, of which five were test matches. Thus, a far superior, 55% of Rashid Khan's first-class career has been in the form of test matches. Is that the highest percentage no. ever? It would be hard to dispute it, no, isn't it? No, Jaden Seals has played four first-class matches and three of them okay. are test matches. Three? Uh, wasn't he on debut no. the other day? No, no, he wasn't on debut. When did he... I th- well, it was the first I'd heard of him. When did he play two test matches before? Oh, you can't go around asking me things like that live. Um, <laughs> let me, I'll find out for you. Hold on. <laughs> You lunatic. <laughs> Look, when we spoke about it, I was under the impression... You said this is his fourth first-class game and here he is propping on the front foot and defending Shaheen Shah Afridi at 154 kilometres an hour as if it was no big thing. But the implication that I took from you was that this was the first time that he'd stepped out in a test match having no. previously played three other first-class matches. I'll give you his career record. Test matches, three. Okay. He's got 13 wickets in those three test matches. First-class matches, mm-hmm. four. He got one wicket in his other first-class game at a cost of 126. Mm. No, sorry, at a, at a cost, I beg your pardon, at a cost of uh, 76, which rendered him okay. good enough for selection. And, yeah, it's good that they got him in. And in terms of batting, in his mm-hmm. only other first-class match, he scored seven mm-hmm. runs in two innings. He's overall, he's got 19 runs in eight innings in his four first-class matches. So, yeah, right. J- Jaden Seals, them... Seals has a 75% of his first-class matches have been test matches. Good gracious me. And uh, that's probably only going to go up because he'll probably play more test matches pretty soon. Uh, well, yes, he's going to play. He'll be playing one almost as we speak, actually. Um, he's mm. starting in about an hour and a half's time. He will play his fourth test match, which will mean he's 80% of his uh, first-class career. 80%? And actually, I think think they've only got two tests. And I believe that the first-class game that he played 
wasn't I don't think for his state I think it was a, a kind of constructed mm-hmm. match between squad right. members that they gave first class status to mm-hmm. I think so okay it's truly staggering he's got only one first wow. class wicket if you, if you do look at it another way 13 fourteenths of his first class wickets have come in test matches <laughs> <laughs> He's obviously convinced somebody. Jaden seals the deal. Uh, hey. Should be the name that he's going with. So, okay. So Rashid Khan's fifty-five percent is left in the shade. But thank you for the correspondence. Also, correspondence from uh, a listener, Daniel O'Connell, the man who's named after a pub, or former pub, I'm sad to say, in Melbourne, who who dropped us a line to say you guys were speaking about Mulgrave Cricket Club, which is in suburban Melbourne. Daniel, getting a hold of Tilakratna Dilshan. Sanath Jayasuriya and Upal Taranga to play club cricket in Melbourne. This is a, a thing that happened recently, a recruiting drive from a suburban Melbourne club. And Daniel said, now I hear that Mulgrave and Adams' former club Endeavour Hills will be sharing players this year. I cannot wait to rock up to cricket with a hangover and be dill-scooped every battler's dream. <laughs> yeah, that is brutal, isn't it? That is absolutely brutal. I, I once played a game of club cricket <laughs> and um, turning out for the opposition was the West Indies' Jimmy Adams for Sunbury, <laughs> which was... Oh, God. Well, I, sorry. With his left arm darts and his... Yeah, um, I, I say that. I, was, I wasn't I was actually playing for the side that was playing against mm-hmm. them. I was on the adjoining pitch. But I saw the look of general horror on the, <laughs> on the part of the oppo when they saw Jimmy Adams. Uh, uh-oh, that's 180 and uh, 5 for 12 in 11 measly overs. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, if you're showing up and the opposition's fielding Dilshan, that's one thing. If they're fielding Dilshan and Jayasuriya mm. with his two phones and Upal Taranga, then, True that. Yeah. then, you know, you're in some real trouble. Uh, <laughs> So I do hope that Endeavour Hills and Mulgrave get together and allow Daniel O'Connell that rare privilege of being flicked over the left shoulder of Dilshan as he comes down on one knee as you're battling the after-effects of 73 brick lanes on a weekend morning. We're going to do the thing that we do on Storytime, Daniel. We're going to play Nerd Pledge. In fact, we're going to play Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game. It's a reverse quiz. It's where the listeners of this show quiz us, the people who are on this show. Here's how it works. We make two shows a week. We need people to support those. Listeners do that. They send us a contribution, a currency contribution, but not a normal amount, not a round number, not a uh, Lady Godiva, not a Jane Austen. They send us a regular number with edits made to it. They send us a specific number because it relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the connection is. For instance, Timothy Ward is our first nerd pledger this week. Timothy has sent in $7.75, which means that that could mean 775, 77.5, 7.75, $775 any kind of number, which I'm going to look at. Does 775 set any neurons firing in your brain before I start? No, it's a very, very big number. <laughs> so mm, in terms it of... It is. In terms of... It doesn't actually... It doesn't equate to me to any team score, but a 7 for no. 75 feels like it might ring a bell mm-hmm. somewhere down the line. Uh-huh. 
I think it might, and I think it might pretty recently. This isn't where I'm going for the main thrust of this answer, but just as a prelude, as an entree, Rakeem the Dream Cornwall took seven for 75 in the first innings against Afghanistan in Lucknow a couple of years ago. He took three for in the second innings, so he ended up with a 10-wicket match, his only 10 for so far in Test cricket. Rakeem, the guy who sends his off-breaks down from about six foot eight in the air and managed to pick up 10 Afghanistan wickets in that match. You would have enjoyed watching Rakeem do his work when he arrived in England last year during lockdown for that West Indies tour. I did, I did. I, I also spoke to, um, I spoke to a man who was involved in the coaching setup in the West Indies he had quite a gruff Australian accent, which I won't entirely try to recreate. Mm-hmm. But um, I was expressing a disappointment that we hadn't seen enough of Rakim, the dream, mm-hmm. Cornwall. Apart from anything else, I, I kind of like the idea of having an entire West Country outfit. There's got to be someone out there called Somerset. We've got a Devon Malcolm. Mm-hmm. I thought Rakim Cornwall finished <laughs> off the set. It's a bit of an English thing, that. And, uh, and he said, Dan... I have a duty of care to these players. He played a five-day test match in West Indian heat at a bloody kill him, which uh, I thought was a little harsh because he has he's managed it quite mm-hmm. fine. Because what he what he tends to do, Rakim, is stand at first slip and then make his way relatively slowly to first slip at the other end. Mm-hmm. He's not called upon to yep. do a great deal of running, and you know he can bat. I love that. Have you seen him bat? Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. oh, it's a wonder to behold. It's a beautiful off the sight. legs. Yeah. Beautiful off the pads. Little flicky stuff. It's, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be happy for him to play every game from now until eternity. He's, he's box office. I also, though, I do wonder if you're six foot eight and yep. you're bowling off spin, it might be advisable every now and then to bowl a, a few yards behind the crease because mm-hmm. flight is a little tricky, I tend to find. Yep. You try and do flight from six foot eight, doesn't really work. So I think he might want to mm-hmm. use might want to use the crease a little bit, by which yeah. I mean not even use it at all. Okay. He also um, he's very good at wearing three hats. As uh, one thing I've noticed with Rakeem, when the bowler gives him a hat and say short leg gives him a hat, Rakeem has no worries about putting those three hats on his head. He and Owen Morgan are the the leaders in the multi hatted mm. sort of cricket fielding stakes at the moment. But where I wanted to take you with seven seven five beyond Rakeem was to another West Indies link. But if we go all the way back to 2009, when England toured the West Indies, and I'm sure you'd remember this tour because I'm sure this was right in the thick of you being very deeply invested in what England did uh, as a, a touring team. The 09 series, people right, might remember this because there was a, a pretty dramatic innings early on in Jamaica, first test, England dominate the early exchanges and then they get bowled out for 51 in the third innings and they lose the test match pretty dramatically. After that, this is a five-test series. They have every flavour of draw. They have a a complete washout in Antigua at the Viv Richards ground. They have a complete classic when the West Indies hang on nine wickets down for 30 or 40 minutes on the fifth day. And then they have two complete batathons where both sides make a million runs. And across that series, Matt Pryor, the wicketkeeper, He missed the fourth test because he went home to see his baby get born, but he played the other four in the series. And he made a stack of runs throughout. He made 64, 61, 39, 15 not out, and in the last test he makes an unbeaten 131. So the only innings in the series where Matt Pryor gets out cheaply is the collapse in Jamaica where they get bowled out for 51. He gets bowled for a fourth ball duck by Jerome Taylor, who took five for 11 that day. Mm. So all across the tour... Matt Pryor scores 310 runs, 
at an average of 77.5, which is the 775 put in by Timothy Ward. England still lose the five-test series 1-0, all based on that first test collapse. Peter Moores gets sacked, Andy Flower gets promoted from 2IC, and that series is the catalyst for England to decide to make themselves the best team in the world, win the Ashes down under, go to number one, and all the rest of it, as chronicled in Barney Douglas's documentary about that era of that team. But 775, I thought, could be Matt Pryor in the West Indies in a, a turning point series for that England team. Am I right to say, wasn't Ian Bell dropped? relatively early on in that series I have a recollection he sort of had to go out of the side and then come back in and uh, mm. yeah that was that was quite like a key like a penance like a sort of penance yeah bless him mm. um, and then he came back stronger and faster and, and more furious and better uh, because of course England mm-hmm. being bowled out for 51 in 2009 by the end of 2009 they'd pretty much got that impregnable batting order which seems so miles mm. away now it had, I think, Pryor ended up with an average of 40, didn't he? So I think six of the top seven, because we got to Strauss, Cook, Bell, Peterson. Well, Trot wasn't in that team at the No, time. but in 2009, he comes in at the end yep. of 2009. So by the end of that year, 2009, and they go to South Africa, they play an incredibly good South African side. And I think they drew the series. They won a, won a game at Durban, which we'll talk about a little bit later, by an innings. Mm. But by then, they'd created this superb top seven was supplemented by Swan and Broad when both of them could be bothered mm-hmm. to bat. So when they were trying to prove mm-hmm. things, so you had a kind of top nine, which is in stark contrast yep. to the current England side. So I think six of them averaged over 40. Mm. And in the current England side, one of them averages over 40 and no one else averages over 35, which is, mm. which I think is probably a measure of where England's batsmanship has, has gone. And yeah. in 12 short years... They don't have a top anything. They have no. a they have a middle one. That's right. Maybe two. Maybe they have a middle three. If Bearstow and Butler have a good day, they have a middle three after the top non three and after the nothing from seven down. Yeah, that's about it. That's about it. Yeah. It's a very different world. Mm. How the world's changed mm. in twelve years. Yeah, Amazing. So that's where I'm going. That's my guess for Timothy Ward. But, Timothy, if that's not correct, if it's not Rakeem the Dream, if it's not Matt Pryor, you can drop us a DM, give us a hint, and we'll come back to it in subsequent weeks on the revisits. The next number is in pounds, GBP. It's from Darren Smith, and it is £2.12. 212. What did you make of 212, Daniel? Well, I've got a couple of suggestions here. And I'm going to give you the one I've probably discarded on the basis that it's come in pounds. <laughs> <laughs> because it's come in pounds, I kind of thought, uh-huh. well, you might be an Aussie living in England who's just paying you in pounds. Yep. And so I mm-hmm. thought if he was an Aussie, maybe it's Merv Hughes's number of wickets, the mighty Merv who appeared. Oh, yeah. He, Good. Yeah, I th- yeah, it made sense. He appeared on Twitter this week. There was a picture of Merv Hughes mm-hmm. without his moustache, which is one of the most chilling things. Have you seen it? Horrific. No, I don't want to see it. Oh, it's, it's truly incredible. It's a young Merv Hughes. I don't want to know. He looks quite handsome, but there's no tash. Yeah. He looks a little bit like a door-to-door vacuum salesman without the tash. Yeah. Now, of course, yeah. Mighty Merv, my first encounter with Merv, or the first time I became aware of his presence, was during a piece of iconic commentary from Tony Gregg in the 1986 mm-hmm. Brisbane Test Match when England were described by Martin Johnson, the recently deceased Martin Johnson, former cricket correspondent of The Independent, as a side, uh, there's only three things they can't do. 
They can't bat, they can't bowl, and they can't field. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> they then proceeded to win the series. It's still a good line. It's a good, it is After a good line. After all these years. It is a good line. Yeah. Uh, they proceeded to win the series 2-1. I mean, in fairness, I think it was, it was, a West, it was an Australian side very much in transition, starting to yeah. have players like Steve Waugh and indeed Merv Hughes come to the fore. But they had some guys that weren't really cutting the mustard and they had a, a Bruce Reed with a metal pole in his back. I had like Craig Matthews. But mm-hmm. at first I became aware of it was Merv Hughes bowling at Ian Botham at the Gabba. And Botham goes on one of those periodic uh, moments of carnage and he smashes 138 to all parts. And there's a brilliant bit where I think he takes Merv for about 20-odd in an over. And in those days, that was like a kind of red-letter moment. You videotape mm. the highlights. You watched it over and over again because it was inconceivable for anyone to get over 10 runs no. in an over, let alone 20. 20. It 20. Was, I think it was 20. It was something crazy. Yeah. And you could just hear Tony Gregg gleefully. You know, every now and then, Tony Gregg discovered his Englishness, which was mostly mm-hmm. largely hidden behind a thick South African accent. But... Yep. He would occasionally occasionally find it, and he did on this occasion to wind up the other Channel 9 commentators. And he went, both of them, he's murdering Merv Hughes. And it's a beautiful, he, he hits Merv and murdering <laughs> in a way that was had great resonance with me. And it was a grey day at the Gabba. Uh, and then, of course, Merv recovered from being murdered by Ian Botham to take 212 <laughs> magnificent test wickets, helped to transform Australian fortunes most notably in the yep. 1993 series, which is always more famous for Shane Warne. But actually what people often forget is that Australia were going through terrible bouts of injury to their fast bowlers. And they had hardly anyone left. It was like Joe Angel and Joe Scuderi were waiting on the bench, <laughs> which is not ideal. So Merv... Uh, the, the kiss drummer himself, <laughs> Diamond Joe Scuderi. Diamond Joe Scuderi. So dear old Merv, he's got a terrible yeah. knee problem that desperately needs surgery but he, he's not going to leave he's not going to leave England because Australia needs him Australia needs Merv so mm-hmm. he Merv's his way through it quite brilliantly mm-hmm. takes 31 wickets I believe in the series and at the end of it his knee is absolutely knackered and his first class career is virtually at an end he plays two more test matches in South Africa but then I'm afraid that is the end of Merv the surgery doesn't quite work and all that's left for him is to become a national selector and visit every single test ground in the world surrounded yep. by drunken fans, growing a moustache ever wider. And I discovered something yep. about him the other day that when he, he had to come in and be weighed, and I think he kind of objected to being weighed. I think he sort of said, well, look, you can see mm-hmm. I'm enormous. Do you really need to weigh me? So he, yeah. he bounded onto this set of scales and broke them. <laughs> he broke the scales. <laughs> Marvellous Merv. Lovely character, but... Uh, he bowled a heavy ball. He did. But I'm discarding him because of £2.12. Okay. So, th- so that's the one you're not going to talk about. That's right. Just, just, the number you're not going to talk about is Merv. This could, be a, this could be a long podcast, couldn't it? I'll try and speed yeah, it up. Okay. So what I'm going to take you to instead is because the moment you sent me through that number, do you know, mm-hmm. my brain went ding, 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 ding. I know 212. Mm-hmm. It's contained in my favourite book. It's the very first wisdom I was ever given. It's the wisdom, 1958 wisdom refers to the 1957 uh-huh. season, which is the first year, incidentally, of Test Match Special, which I'm now very honoured to be a part of. And I've read this book so much that the spine is falling off. I'm a Surrey fan. And in 1957, uh-huh. Surrey were the primary force in domestic cricket in England. It's also the year that England played the West Indies in that famous series in which 
Peter May gets 285 not out in a 411 run partnership with Michael Colin Cowdery and necessitates a change to the LBW law, breaking the hearts mm-hmm. of Ramadan and Valentine as they simply kicked the ball away the moment it pitched outside off stump and therefore destroying cricket because that's what you know good noble mm. men of the English establishment do. English, en- yeah, English, English cads. It's a miracle they didn't yep. have silent movie moustaches, those two. But <laughs> you're saying, what's this got to do with 212? Well, mm-hmm. the great, massively underrated Tony Locke, the man who took one wicket while his spin partner, Jim Laker, took 19 yep. the year before on a pitch Australians maintain as doctored to this day. He and, and he was a little bit dirty about it, Tony Locke. He was a bit. Well, he, you he would He didn't be. think yeah. it was quite fair. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, I mean, I believe he was quite an irascible character, old Tony. G-A-R Locke, well, if you was, look him up. He was a very good bowler, and he didn't much like being relegated to a footnote of, you took the other weekend. The other. I know, out of 20. That's quite a thing. You took the other. Yeah. But he always will have a place in history for that. So, you know, that's, yeah. that's something. Left armour, slow left armour, although accused in later life of being a little bit of a chucker every now and then. He chucked his quicker one, they said. Whomst amongst us has not chucked a finger spinner. Let's let's be real. Let's be honest. Well, I, I know. That's the only way I can actually propel it to the other end. Anyway, dear old Tony in 1957 mm-hmm. became, he didn't know it at the time, the last man, the last man in domestic cricket yep. to take 200 wickets in a season. And do you know how many he took? Well, I think you can guess. 212. It was 200 and 12 212 wickets an, an incredible season for Surrey I'm just briefly going to digress into Surrey because obviously you know I'm a Surrey man I'm just going to give you a couple mm-hmm. of a couple of the county championship averages from 1957 which includes the mighty Tony Tony in the county championship alone took 153 mm-hmm. wickets at an average of 11.58 <laughs> he was joined by Jim Laker who took 85 wickets at an average of 12.41 Eric Bedser mm-hmm. The, I believe, younger brother of Alec by about 10 minutes. Alec, yep. They tossed a coin to see who was going to be the quick bowler. Who Alec the spinner. Bedser, <laughs> who taught you to bowl? That's the fella. Well, his brother Eric mm-hmm. had a better average that year. He took 60 wickets at 13.4. Peter Loder took 101 wickets at 14.73. And Alec Bedser, 109 mm-hmm. wickets at an average of 15. And there is right. one glorious match I'm going to tell you about, and then mm-hmm. we can move on. It took place on May the 11th and 13th, just those two days. Surrey won okay. by an innings and 166 runs, having posted Handy. the rather modest first innings total of 259. Mm-hmm. They bowled Glamorgan out. <laughs> <laughs> they bowled Glamorgan out for 62 and 31. Uh-huh. And Locke and Laker opened the bowling in the second innings. Locke took six for 14, Laker three for 11. In the first innings, Locke had taken six for 20, Laker three for 10 to give Locke match figures of 12 for 34. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to think it was that. I hope it's that because it's my favourite book. I've read it so much from the age of eight. And when I heard that 212, I went, Mm -hmm. that's top of the first class bowling averages from 1957. (laughs) Of course you did. Of course you did. And if if Tony Locke was a bit shitty that Laker took 19 in a test, what about that game where Tony Locke took six and six and Laker took three and three? Exactly. Against Glamorgan. Share and share alike. They're a very fine side in those days, Glamorgan, I'm sure. (laughs) Yep, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) They were not a patch on Gloucestershire, the freaks. Um, (laughs) So, okay, Darren Smith, that's your 212. Drop us a message if it's wrong. 
Next up, Dan Foreman. Another British pounds pledge. Interesting. Three pounds oh seven. Now, Dan could be someone who's visited the MCG. Um, he could be someone who's seen the big, the big board, the big sign that says Bob Cowper three oh seven. As you, you know, you would have, you would have known the sign that has the biggest score by a home player and the best bowling analysis by a home player and an away player that saw Alistair Cook supplant Viv Richards with one of the great double hundreds replaced with one of the less great double hundreds um, after the the Ashes test of Boxing Day 2017. But we've talked about the Bob Cowper 307 on the show before. Adam likes to talk about John Edrich scoring the most runs in boundaries when he made his 310 Bob Cowper's the opposite. He scored the least runs in boundaries in a score that big. He hit 24s out of 307. So 80 runs out of 307 were boundaries. The rest he ran. He ran 29 threes in that innings. Ooh. A record for any any innings. Hashtag MCG so big. There's also a good chance that it's Fred Truman who took 307 test wickets, set that as the world record in 1963 and held it for just shy of 13 years until Lance Gibbs took it in 76. They're the obvious ones, but I'm going to go somewhere else, Daniel. I'm going to go via Lance Gibbs to another West Indies player because there are a, there are a handful of West Indies batters particularly who don't get celebrated like the others, like Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, Elvin Kalacharan, like the earlier, you know, the three Ws or George Headley. There's Charlie Davis, who averaged over 50, one of the few, one of the 40-odd players in Test history to average more than 50. There's also a player called Clifford Roach, who didn't have the same numbers that Charlie Davis had. His Test average ended up at 30.7, which could be the 307 sent in by Dan Foreman, the nerd pledge number being 307. But, but... The relatively low average for Clifford Roach was partly because he was a very aggressive opening bat. He liked to go for it, and he played for West Indies right at the start. He was playing for Trinidad in the 20s and 30s, and so he was in line to play for the West Indies when they played their first test match in England in 1928. He had that kind of career that was a bit up, a bit down. He once made a test half century in half an hour (laughs) when he was touring England. We don't have the ball's face recorded, but it was a quick one. He played a tour match against Surrey, your mob, when he made 128 by lunch on the first day. Oh, that would have been brutal. That would be against against the likes of Percy Fender and Douglas Jardine, probably, yeah. (laughs) Early 30s. So... West Indies played their first test matches in England um, across three games. He made a couple of 50s. West Indies got demolished. They got beaten by an innings in all three matches. But then when England came back in return a year or so later, he made England pay. Uh, that That is what happened as far as Clifford Roach went. He, he hurt them. So the first test that England played when they came back to the Caribbean... He made 122 in less than three hours in the first match, taking down Wilfred Rhodes in the process. <laughs> and then he made another 77 in the second innings, batting with George Headley, put on a big partnership that took West Indies from a, a pretty dangerous deficit into a lead. They ended up drawing the match. Was that Wilf Rhodes? They lost the second match. Was that Wilf Rhodes' last tour when he was about sort of 48, 49, yeah. 50 odd or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was ni- 1930, so it must have been mm. his last tour, his last test match outing. So. They lost the second game. Clifford Roach made a pair. And then in the third game, he makes 209 in less than five hours. 22 fours, three sixes. England, after fielding for 150 overs, gets shot out for 145. 
West Indies set them 617 <laughs> to win and bowl them out. <laughs> it's the first test win for the West Indies team. They draw the fourth match. They draw the series, one all with England, a big achievement in just their second test series. Clifford Roach later played in their first test win against Australia as well in Sydney in 1931. When uh, quite bold, they set Australia 251 and bowled them out for 220. Bradman, 43 and naught, his fourth worst test return when batting in both innings uh, in that match, I'll have you know. And Roach to at England again, got one more home test in 1935, but uh, that was it. He finished up with Trinidad in 38. He'd also played football for the national Trinidad team. And then he went back to his work as a solicitor, which I'm sure he attacked with the same vim as, as he attacked the new ball. When he was in his 60s, he had to have both his legs amputated from diabetes complications. But he lived another 20 years and he was described by the Trinidad and Tobago Hall of Fame when they inducted him at the age of 80. They said he is still the bright, cheerful personality he has always been. That was Clifford oh. Roach, who made the first century for West Indies and the first double in the space of three matches. I like the sound the of Clifford. I, I think if ever I move house, and bear in mind that I've been living in this house for the best part of 35 years on and off, I want someone like Clifford Roach to do the conveyancing. I reckon he could get through it in mm-hmm. double quick time. I bet he was a <laughs> really efficient, really efficient solicitor. Like, you'd ring him in the morning, the paperwork would be done by lunchtime. <laughs> Yeah, the paperwork would be in your letterbox before he'd arrived <laughs> to speak to you. Yep, like Muhammad Ali. So that, yep. that's my Clifford Roach. The next number we've got is from Nigel Brown. It's in euros, fancy, ooh-la-la. Mm. Uh, it's 390, 3.90. What have you got to kick us off, Daniel, after Dan Foreman's 307? Well, this feels, this feels very South African-themed to me because the first two numbers that mm-hmm. splurt to mind... 390 is at the highest first-class score in South Africa by Stephen Cook when he scored 390 in an absolutely dismal run-fest that um, you sent my way (laughs) earlier today. Do you think Nigel Brown is as much of a South African tragic that he wants maybe the worst first-class match to ever be played to be his number? Is he that much of a Stephen Cook freak that he wants the 390 coming in? Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, let's let's just mm-hmm. take, let's take a look at the details of that abysmal match. Three hundred and ninety in basically what amounted to a two innings game. I mean, it's a game of such monumental awfulness that it's it's a bit like actually uh, the Bob Simpson game. You remember that three hundred and eleven yep. played? Heaven knows what else. It was a much talked about, most mm-hmm. talked about boring game possibly in the history of cricket. That game. I've almost got a ton from Johan Berta. I mean, that that lets you know what's going on. Ninety seven from uh, about four hours from Johan Berta. That's right. That was really exciting. So 532 mm-hmm. Warriors got in their first innings in what must have been a truly scintillating 10 hours and 10 minutes of cricket. 154 <laughs> from Ashwell Prince, incidentally. Yep. And this is the Warriors. And then they come up against the Lions, the Lions responding to 532 in uh, 14 hours <laughs> and 22 minutes. <laughs> Score the small matter of 690, in which Stephen Cook, yep. batting himself for 838 minutes, hits 54 yeah, fours and 1-6. I love the way he kept the ball along the ground for nearly all of that innings. Yep. Loved the carpet, Stephen Cook. They always said that. 648 balls in a, an innings of 690 for nine. And then they trooped off, mm. I'm sad to say. Mm. It is the highest first-class score in South Africa. It could be that, but... But surely, 
if you doubt it well if you're going to do 390 and if it's going to be south african themed there's only one man isn't there there's the mighty the first black african to play for south africa makaya Ntini, who's took oh yes 390 wickets in his test career an interesting fact about makaya Ntini: of all the bowlers to have taken over 300 test wickets he has the lowest percentage of lbws only 24 of his 390 wickets or LBWs. Wow. That comes in at 6.15%, incidentally. Hmm. Rather amazingly. Now, I say it's amazing, but if you think about Makar and Tini, what's the image you have in your mind? He's stepping over his front leg as he bowls. He's doing that thing that he used to do because he had to avoid the concrete pitch that he bowled on when he was a kid. And his front leg is coming across his back leg. His right leg's coming across his left leg, out wider than the position where you would expect his front foot to be and so he's delivering from wide on the crease exactly and at a time when he started of course in 1998 so there's no drs so at a moment mm-hmm. the umpire has got makar and teeny bowling he's saying you're only getting an lbw if someone's not playing a shot because basically you're either hit outside the line or if you hit in line it's missing it's the going legs down leg that's probably yep. the reason. But 390 right. wickets and 101 tests, an average of 28.82. Uh, also, 266 ODI wickets. Now, that's 500, uh, 600 rather, and 56 international wickets. When you're the first mm. black African to play for South Africa, you can't get much of a better trailblazer than that, can you? What mm. a man. What a fighter mm, and yeah. what a man. And someone who, you know, definitely was not welcomed with open arms by the white teammates that he had, you know, as, as much as he contributed to their teams. So they, it they, appears that way, were, doesn't it? There were those among the, that, that team who were not uh, welcoming him with all of the warmth and enthusiasm at their disposal, you could say. One last comment on him. It's his last test match. And I'm afraid, despite those stellar numbers, he finished his test career against England at Durban that team that we've just been talking about when England won by an innings and 98 runs and his haul was none for 114 I'm afraid to say and that was the point mm. at which he pulled the plug and said I've had enough I've had enough at 390 400's not for me and then he went and became a bodybuilder like Chris Tremlett I met him had a couple of chats with him when Australia were there on the Sandpaper Tour in 2018 and he had become Enormous in a, a healthier way than you might expect that <laughs> sentence to mean. His his biceps were like cantaloupes. His thighs were... He couldn't wear long trousers. He had to wear capri shorts because his calves were too big. Wow. He was, he'd just become so muscular and so strong and uh, and had this incredibly robust voice. And uh, he, was a, he was a delight to chat to, uh, Mackay Antini. So 390 could well be him, Nigel Brown. We've got uh, a couple of numbers to go. Here we go. This is a good one. Tanya Wintringham has been a, a long-time supporter of the show, but always in a Julio pledge capacity, not in a nerd pledge capacity. A little while ago, Tanya thought, I want to play the game. I want to play nerd pledge. And thus, Tanya rounded up her pledge to something else, something nerdy. It is $11.37. And Tanya wrote to us to say, updated my Julio to a nerd pledge in honour of New Zealand making the final of the World Test Championship. I am sure you will work it out in a roundabout kind of way. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, that was a clue. That was a roundabout kind of way. New Zealand. Daniel, 
Come on. Here we... New Zealand roundabouts. Oh. Are you with me? Yeah there's, yeah, there's a cricket ground that's placed on a roundabout, isn't there? Uh-huh. Yes. The Tanya, big New Zealand enthusiast, lives in the Shaky Isles. A roundabout. The Basin Reserve in Wellington yes. is built on a roundabout. In fact, it, it's not built on a roundabout. It is a roundabout <laughs> because a large circular road goes around the entire cricket ground. Is it the only ground that's roundabout? You could sort of argue that Gaul is almost a roundabout because it has a big curved road around about three quarters of it, mm. but it also has a flat side as well, and it's not quite circular, although the part in front of the fort is circular. If there are any other roundabout grounds, let me know. But the cricket ground in the middle means that it's got to be one of the biggest roundabouts in the world. Uh, the biggest roundabout in the world, as per the Malaysians, they claim that uh, Putrajaya, which is the artificial city that Dr. Muhammad Mahathir had built uh, outside of Kuala Lumpur, about an hour outside to house the administrative buildings and so on. They reckon that has the world's biggest roundabout at three and a half kilometres diameter. Wow, that is, Basin Reserve is, that is a ridiculously big roundabout. Yeah, that's just a highway on a curve, I reckon. But 11.37, that's what we're working with with Tanya, $11.37. 11.37 at the Basin Reserve, if you look at the ground stats, guess what? Kane Williamson has scored 1,137 test runs at the Basin Reserve. Not yet the highest because Ross Taylor's got 12.79, so Kane might still have to catch him up. But Kano, if you've watched the recent Mortal Kombat movie, maybe you could imagine Kane Williamson as Kano. Not really. They're very different personalities, but there was some amusement to that character. After his debut ton in India early in the 2010-11 season, Kane Williamson took until the end of the next season to get his first 100 at home. It was a good 100. South Africa declared twice in the game, got a huge lead. They had 80 overs to bowl at New Zealand. The scores from the rest of the top six in that game were 18, 15, naught, naught, and naught. <laughs> and Kane Williamson batted five and a half hours with the redoubtable lower order New Zealanders Doug Bracewell and Kruger Van Wick. Oh, yeah. Never heard of a more New Zealand character than Cornelius Francois Kruger Van Wick. Who played nine tests for New Zealand? He's he's like somebody out of like Lethal Weapon, isn't he? He's like the, he's like a Josh mm. Ackland character. <laughs> Diplomatic immunity, diplomatic immunity, <laughs> Mister Williamson. Kane Williamson got 102 not out that day. His first ton at home, uh, and off he went. He scored three hundreds at the Basin, all unbeaten, including his double ton when they were in trouble against Sri Lanka. He scored six fifties there as well. His last three scores: eighty nine, seventy four, and ninety one. And he averages 67 at the Basin Reserve, where he's made 1,137 runs. And that, Tanya Wintringham, is your number. I'm forced to ask, it's got to be up there with one of the most, you know, along with Ross Taylor, most number of runs scored by any individual at a particular ground. I'm imagining that mm. Lords would be helpful for that. Say Joe Root at Lords, because he gets yep. to play two test matches a year there, doesn't he? So Yeah, that's or Strauss or someone at Lords, maybe. Didn't or Cook. Score, yeah, could be Cook, couldn't it? But, I mean, I think Roots, Roots got two 180s, which, of course, mm. is the second highest identical number mm -hmm. of runs scored by the same batsman at the same ground. Yep. 182 being the highest by someone who's yeah, never I reckon. Me. I reckon there are a few Australians who've got 1,000 runs at a couple of grounds. Ponting's got 1,000 at 
at a couple of grounds like Adelaide mm. and Sydney, maybe maybe Clark has a thousand at Sydney without looking them up. It's um, never an Indian though, is it? I'll because, tell you what. Because Indi- Indians have <laughs> to play. Bradman's got at least 600 at Leeds, I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. But I suppose he'll only have played at most four, probably three tests at Leeds, wouldn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Indians, of course, they find it very difficult to break that record mm. because they keep on moving around India, so mm. they don't play every year in the same place. 29 test venues, is it, at the, uh, at the most recent yeah, count? Might be that, yeah. So anyway, the good news, Tanya, for you, is that I know you live in New Zealand, but we assume there's at least one person in Australia who you like, and you get to send them a case of beer. Uh, you can send them a case of Brick Lane, One Love, Pale Ale, or another beer of your choice. Let me tell you about this Pale Ale, Daniel. It has a balanced bitterness. It has tropical notes, and it's refreshing all year round. It's much like you in those ways. It's a soft-bodied pale ale bursting with bright characters and a cleansing bitterness. Isn't that like you? It is, Uh, yeah. I've got a cleansing bitterness, and I've got a very soft body. Yeah. Do you not have fresh hop aromas and layered flavours of grapefruit, passion fruit and stone fruit? I think Well, you. actually, not the grapefruit because I'm, I'm on an anti-blood um, uh, pressure medication at the moment and I'm not allowed mm. to have grapefruit anymore. But yes, I've got all yeah, the others. Right. Frequently smell of hops all in the, the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so look, bricklanebrewing.com.au, that's, uh, that is what is going on. Um, as far as the One Love Pale Ale. Uh, And Tanya, we will tell you how to send that to someone that you like in Australia. All righty then. We have one more number in the new numbers file today. And this one, this one I gave to you, Daniel, because I thought Chris Arkell, Chris Arkell is a pledger who likes some random shit. He likes some obscurity and he likes that to involve very English things, you know, involving the the nicknames of county players in the 70s and things like that that might be even more strongly in your wheelhouse than, than Adam's or mine. The pledge from Chris Arkell is £9 and 4 pence, so 904. And there is a clue from Chris Arkell which reads, it involves a Christmas tree salesman and has the second highest pair of spectacles which i thought does that mean a very tall person who wore glasses maybe uh does that does that mean somebody who is highly intoxicated while wearing glasses maybe <laughs> there are a range of places this could have gone but 904 i gave you the clue i gave you the number and i'm intrigued to see what you came up with well i i reckon i've probably spent about a day and a half trying to make any sense of this. <laughs> the clue itself, there, there used to be an old game show called 321 in England, yep. which had extraordinarily weird clues. Check it out on uh, on YouTube if you've not seen it, folks, because it was insane, mm-hmm. a little bit like this. But the clue itself was helpful to me. Mm-hmm. A pair of spectacles is a term that's used certainly in England, I'm not sure it is in Australia, to describe bagging a pair. So is you it? get naught in both innings of a game. Yep. Yep, he's bagged a pair of spectacles. It is not used in Australia, I don't think, uh, unless it's used in Australia behind my back. (laughs) (laughs) 
It brings to mind uh, there was a, a little bit of stand-up from the Irish comedian Jim Owen who, who said, uh, you know, somebody came up to me today and said, it's a balmy day today. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, it's a balmy day. And he said, what is balmy? He said, I have never heard this word before in my life. People have been waiting until I leave the room to whisper among themselves, <laughs> a bit of a balmy day today, isn't it? And then balmy keep it quiet when I come back day. in. So unless the pair of spectacles is like that, um, I haven't heard of it. Right. Well, it is. Okay. It's, it's an English expression for a pair. Okay. And the other part of the clue is a Christmas tree salesman. Now, there are two modestly well-known Christmas tree salesmen <laughs> that I can think of. Uh, well, there's three, actually, if, if you include Ollie Rayner. Ollie Rayner of, of Middlesex, who made it into the England Day side briefly. Yeah, and the two used to sell these Christmas trees together. Okay. And they both played for Surrey. There was Nadim Shahid. Mm-hmm who never made it into the test side, had a very modest career. And then Ed Giddens, mm-hmm. very famous Ed Giddens, uh, became a poker player. He's now a, a, an after-dinner speaker and host. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most wonderful and eccentric men I've ever worked with. He, he was on Test Match Sofa for a while. And he used to sell Christmas trees when he was a county player. Really? To supplement his income. Yes, he did. And he um, was on Test Match he, Sofa. So by pure serendipity, we've got you on the show... As, you Pleasure. know, the, the inventor, the pioneer of Test Match Sofa, at the same time as there is potentially an Ed Giddens-related nerd pledge. I think so. Okay. I think so. Now, first, let me just take you through my, my thought processes, okay. though, because 904, there is no number associated with Ed Giddens that's 904. This man mm. scored 534 first-class runs in his entire career. He was a terrible batter. Mm-hmm. So that's what made me think, hmm, that goes with the pair of spectacles. 478 wickets is what he took. Wow. But 904, now Matthew Hoggard has a first-class batting average of 9.04. So I put in a call to Jonathan Agnew this morning. I said, could you check with Hoggy if he ever sold Christmas trees? Because Hoggy bagged a few pairs in his Mm -hmm. day. No answer came back. No, why, says Hoggy. (laughs) I've not. I've not told him why. He's just gonna. I'm afraid he's just gonna have to live in blissful ignorance and wonder why Agus texted him to ask if he sold Christmas trees. Okay. This is how far the reach of this nerd pledge has gone. I tell you, right oh. to the very top of TMS. Chris Arkell, I hope so, that you are satisfied already <laughs> with the work that's gone into this. <laughs> right. So then I thought, okay, I'm. I'm going to come back to Giddens, but. Mm-hmm. Giddens checked out pairs. He's not got that many pairs. Now, because second most number of pairs of spectacles, mm-hmm. you see, this is what kind of confused me. But maybe in first-class cricket, but no, because I went so far as to head towards Andrew Sampson, mm-hmm. one of the great statisticians of world cricket. The test ones are quite easy to discover. Chris Martin has seven pairs mm-hmm. in his career. No great surprise there. Mm-hmm. The next most four is four and they are Merv Dillon, the West Indian yep, pace bowler. I remember him well. Uh, Chandra Seker, the Indian spinner who famously couldn't bat. Uh, Courtney Walsh, uh, Mutaya Murulitharan, mm-hmm. and of course, hilariously, Marvin Atapatu. Yep. Uh, now you'll see there was a, there's a certain link between the first five names there, Martin, uh, etc., Chandra mm-hmm. Seker. Marvin Atapatu actually scored 16 centuries in his career. Yep. None of the others had a 50 between them. And actually, when you look even further, which I did, the next group of people, there are 15 more players, or is it 17 more players, I beg your pardon, who have had three pairs right. in Test cricket. Only two of them 
ever scored a test century. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, Ajit Agarkar got one famously is on yep. the Lord's Honours board. We talked about him Andrew last Flintoff. week, in fact, uh, at length, me and Adam mm. on the show, about uh, the, the the remarkable Agarkar career. Yeah, it, it, and remarkable it is. Then I started thinking of nine for four, and mm-hmm. nine for four was the score that India were on when Kapil Dev walked out to bat at Tunbridge Wells mm-hmm. against uh, Zimbabwe in that famous World Cup game in 1983. I couldn't make that work. Mm-hmm. Then I was thinking about, I went back to the Christmas trees. Okay. I thought, I can't get further. It's got to be Giddens, so wait for this. Can I tell you one yeah. thing before you go on? Because I, you know, I, I saw this clue as well, and I did look for one thing. I thought, could the second highest pair of spectacles be the second most deliveries faced by a batter who has made zero runs across two innings in a test match. Mm. And I did look at that because James Anderson holds the record with 61 deliveries in that Sri Lanka test that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where he faced six balls in the first innings and 55 in the second. And the second highest would be Mike Whitney who faced seven balls in the first innings and 42 in the second for 49 to make a pair. So he was the second highest Ooh. pair in terms of deliveries faced, but I don't think he has anything to do with Christmas trees. I don't think he does, and I couldn't find a 904 for him. Mm. Incidentally, I did discover in my research, and this I didn't know until researching, that, that Arjuna Ranatonga, the great snacking Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. Sri Lankan captain, uh, he was responsible for building the world's largest artificial Christmas tree. Was it? It was planned to be 100. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, it was planned to be 100 meters tall. <laughs> In the end, because um, there was a strike or something, or, or people weren't available to work on it, they had to cut it down to 57 meters, which is still two meters longer than the record that was previously <laughs> held by a Chinese artificial Christmas tree in Guangzhou. Apparently, contains over six hundred thousand LED bulbs, has a six meter high Santa and a twelve meter long sleigh. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, but well, anyway, I, that is a that's a digression. I was I was congratulating myself for energy efficiency um, because the LEDs that I put up are they run at seven watts per two hundred lights, but if you have how how many thousands was it? Uh, 600,000. 600,000. Okay. It's a big tree, 57 yeah. metres, and it's, and it's wide to boot as well. That's a lot of watts. You know? That's a lot of kilowatt hours to run that tree, even on LEDs. Mm, he got a bit of stick for it, actually, because it yeah. was deemed to be a ridiculous waste of public money. But <laughs> unsurprisingly... I can't see how that conclusion was reached. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if he's still a cabinet minister. So then I thought, okay, well, maybe... Maybe it's slightly cryptic, and it's not necessarily the numbers of pairs mm. or the number of balls faced for pairs. Giddens did have five consecutive ducks. Mm-hmm. Now, the record for most consecutive ducks is six. So it is the second highest number of consecutive ducks, right? Oh. Mark War famously had four ducks in a row and got yep. called Audi, mm-hmm. didn't he? And they suggested if you got another one, it'd be called Olympic. The first person to achieve the rare feat of six consecutive ducks, by the way, uh, is an Englishman named E.G. Hartnell. And what's absolutely marvellous about his feat was that it stretched between 1844 and 1850. Mm. So for six years, he went out to play first-class cricket (laughs) on and off, and he never scored a run. (laughs) Six years, six ducks. Absolutely superb. Intriguingly, there's a man called Rohit Sharma, Mm. who's not the same Rohit Sharma. Oh. Uh, this guy played for Jammu and Kashmir and a medium pacer. He's played 12 first-class matches, had 14 innings, 
including a stretch of six consecutive ducks, right? Mm -hmm. So he was only he was out eight times. He's got six not outs. I think he must have either improved or got worse. I don't know which because I can't find when he did them. He scored 10 runs in his entire career at an average of 1.25. Wow. Further great five consecutive duckers are uh, Charlie Shrek, uh, Nguyen Pradeep, ANPR Fernando, mm -hmm. and Imran Ali. But Giddens did get five. So okay. now I'm thinking, this has got to be Giddens. But where's 904 come into it? I hear you say, where, where? Well. Yep. Well. I'm still asking that. I was, uh, I was idly flicking through wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I found reference to Ed Giddens and his feats playing for the England Schools Cricket Association back in 1989. Mm -hmm. And his feats themselves weren't particularly remarkable. But as I scrolled down, I discovered that Eastbourne College, which is the school that he played for, so mm. he played for the, the whole English schools thing, but Eastbourne College itself, which was his school, their stats were on page 904. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> yes, for real. The 1990 wisdom, Ed Giddens, is on page 904. Oh. And I'll give you his batting stats for that year. 187 runs, an average of 17, highest score 48. So, you know, in schools cricket, he was yeah. just not very good with the bat. And 38 wickets at an average of 15. He wasn't the best bowler in his side, actually. A guy called F.A. Ali took mm. 48 wickets at 12.62. Okay. But there is Ed Giddens, Christmas tree salesman, infamous scorer of many, many ducks, yeah. on page 904 oh. of the 1990 Wisdom, referring to the 1989 season. If it's not the answer, I can't do any more. As Adam has said on this show before, if it's not the answer, lie to us. <laughs> lie to us <laughs> and, with as much conviction as you possibly can, Chris Arkell, because we've got a Christmas tree salesman with the second highest uh, streak of consecutive ducks on page 904 of the Wisdom. <laughs> that, that is beautiful, Daniel. That is why we got you on this show. We thought if there is someone, well, you. if there is someone who can fill the breach, it is you, and thus, thus it has proved. Chris Arkell, let us know, or more to the point, don't let us know. Uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> too right. If that's not, if that's not right, yeah. then I just, I, I will just be in despair and cry yeah. <laughs> for yeah. a long time. Spare us, spare us that particular um, injustice and indignity. I think I think we've reached the point of the show where we need to take a moment to collect ourselves. Now, a good thing is that even though Adam's not on this show, he is on this show because before this show he conducted a brief interview with Tom Holland, who is a writer of repute, who's doing a very interesting walk, a long walk from the, from the birthplace of cricket to the place where cricket took its first step to the place where cricket was uh, inducted into childcare for the first time. Uh, you're, you're across this as well. You've chatted to Tom about this. I have, yes. I mean, what, what Tom set out to do, or is setting out to do is a mammoth walk. It's 50-something miles in two days, taking in a whole load of cricket history from mm. Guildford, which is right on the edge of the M25. It'll end up in Lords, taking a perambulating route which Tom will tell you all about and features some incredible highlights and, and an extraordinary, uh, there's a, an extraordinary story there. It's a man who writes books about history, about 
medieval times and the origins of Islam. He hosts documentaries, but when the weather's fine at this time of year, when it's meant to be fine anyway, you'll see him turning out for scores of games for the Mighty Authors Cricket Club. Tom Holland, welcome to the program. The reason we've got you on today is to talk about the latest in a series of charity events you've been running through season 2021 in what we have been dubbing the first ever benefit year for an amateur cricketer. Uh, please explain. Yeah, well, so, uh, yes, as you say, I played for a team called The Authors, which actually uh, has a really distinguished pedigree. It goes back to before the First World War and Arthur Conan Doyle and mm. P.G. Woodhouse, all kinds of people played for it. Then it slightly went into abeyance and then it got resurrected in 2012. And so basically we've been playing almost for 10 years. And obviously 10 years means you can have a benefit if you're a county player <laughs> and use the money to go and buy a pub or a sports shop or whatever. But I'm not doing that. So the money that I'm raising is going to three homelessness charities, two here in, um, here in the UK and one uh, that's particularly close to my heart based in Iraq, which is the Yazidis who are a religious minority who got horribly targeted for persecution by the Islamic State. The men got, I mean, kind of killed crucified the women got enslaved girls as young as eight i mean just horrible and loads of them are stuck in refugee camps so everything that we can raise is you know in the most amazing cause so basically that's what our that's what my benefit this year is about uh, and we've got to we've raised about 50 grand so far but if we can get you know get that century that would be amazing. Get get up to 100,000. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it very much fits into the category of good people doing good things here, sort of investing a lot of time in, in raising money for these charities. And on the 23rd of August, perhaps your most ambitious uh, yeah. ambitious effort so far. I know you walked the M25 or something like that back earlier in the season, but um, uh, this time you've got another long journey ahead of you. Yeah, so so we did a we did a forty five mile walk across London from a cricket ground in the north of London to another cricket ground in in the south, um, and we went via Lords, Craven Cottage, and Twickenham. So it was very much a kind of sports themed. This new one we're aiming to do. I don't know how far it is, maybe fifty five, sixty something like that miles <laughs> in twenty four hours, and it's absolutely focused on cricket. So we are going to be starting off in Guildford which is where the earliest known recorded mention of cricket took place. Uh, and that's kind of 1550. And we're going to end up at Lords, obviously. But en route, we're going to go via all kinds of places that have a historical significance for cricket. So we're just going to kind of thread our route along these various waypoints that will take us right the way back to, you know, through all the kind of fascinating stages of cricket's evolution. So you'll, you'll go to places that are relevant to, to WG and to CLR James and all the rest of it. I mean, it's not just modern figures. You're going all the way back. I, I'd, I'd say probably there's a premium on, on um, the beginnings because you've got all these kind of villages between Guildford and London where, you know, the, the, these were the kind of the birthplace of the game. So we've got the first known cricket match I mentioned, but the first known match where uh, women played. Um, we've got the the place where the first known tie in a cricket match was recorded. Um, we've got a queue where um, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, who's the one who died after being hit over the heart by a cricket ball. So we have the first royal cricketing fatality. I think possibly actually the only royal cricketing fatality. But so so we've got all kinds of stuff. And as you said, yeah, we we'll, so we'll be going through Brixton, where I live, where CLR James, the great you know uh, beyond the boundary writer um lived so loads of loads of 
loads of places and I'll thread them all together on Twitter and hopefully for anyone interested in cricket history even if you're not interested in the walk it will be a kind of interesting cavalcade of places yeah you did have quite a prolific Twitter thread uh, earlier in April when you were doing that the aforementioned uh, early season walk so uh, yeah first of all who are you doing this with like how are you pulling this together Uh, and how can people get involved with it be it by fundraising or following what you're doing with the benefit year more generally well so the previous walk we did I did it with my brother James who is a a much much better cricketer than I am we did this 45 mile walk the day after I couldn't move he went and he scored 80 he he, he not only played but he scored 80 I mean unbelievable and I'm doing it with Matt Thacker who is um, the kind of eminence grease of uh, of sports and specifically cricket publishing and I hope that other people will will come along and join us so the details will be on my twitter feed which is at holland underscore tom and the pinned tweet there gives you the link if you fancy in any way paying for these wonderful causes, that would be amazing. But even if you don't, there's a couple of brilliant videos which got made for free for us. We've got a whole cavalcade of amazing cricketers who've sent best wishes messages to Alistair Cook, Jimmy Anderson, Ian Bell, uh, Matthew Hoggard and Andrew Kaddick, who I unbelievably got out in charity matches so <laughs> brilliant you know brilliant sports mark butcher so so great great messages from them so um worth checking out just for that i hope yeah i've seen a number of these firsthand actually on people's phones after they gathered them for you so there's been yeah quite a groundswell of support around what you've done this year i mean there's been that quiz night i think i i inadvertently have done the quiz i've been given the quiz that you had put on for you uh, after a few beers uh, back at the, <laughs> the wisdom towers offices uh, one night but also you've had effectively a sportsman's night with a, a number of people talking about their stories in the game and, and that kind of thing and, and the target's £100,000 and yeah perhaps just to go into again you know when you talk about this in generic homeless charities like what, what are we looking to do uh, with the money it, it, those who are working in London specifically? So there's the, the passage which you know it, it deals with everyone who's homeless it's kind of an amazing cause and then there's another one that's more specifically focused on the problem that women face because they are particularly subject to threats and pressures um and so they need long-term care they need long-term housing to get themselves back on their feet and this would be i think the 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 first project that aims to to provide that specifically focused on women and then the the, the Yazidis as i say so i think it's it's a it's a good spread a good range of uh, of causes so you've got a website and having a look here it's tom holland benefit 2021.com and from there we'll put a link into the show notes about how you can get involved with your walk uh, on the 23rd of august uh, thanks for taking some time out of your very very busy life uh, to talk to us on the final word and congratulations on what's been a mighty effort let's push forward to 100 grand <laughs> thanks so much for having me really appreciate it Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Daniel Norcross. So thank you to Adam for appearing on the show. Even when he's not on the show, he's on the show. He cannot be stopped. He will not be stopped. <laughs> the Colo juggernaut just rolls on. <laughs> it rolls on. I should also note uh, for people who, who may not know this that if you want to buy a cricket bat that's really good or some equipment, some pads, some gloves, some other things, you can get them from Woodstock uh, Cricket Company. They make beautiful bats. They tell you what sort of bat you need. They ask you what sort of bat you need. They go through the whole process with you. They make 
lovely bats for not crazy prices. They're not the most expensive, but you can also get 20% off it with our code TFW20 when you go to woodstockcricket.co.uk. So you'd be stupid not to, honestly, if you were going to buy a cricket bat. Why not get 20% off it? I, I hung out with uh, their board yesterday did at you? a lunch in London. I did. And I heard what tremendous things they're doing. They created kind of family uh, atmosphere. You know, if you if you buy a Woodstock bat, you're part of the Woodstock team, mm. basically. And they're interested in how you get on with it. And I thoroughly love them. At Stephen Finn, who's on a podcast that I do when I'm not covering for Colo, called Zero Ducks Given, mm-hmm. the England, uh, England fast bowler. He has a Woodstock bat. He is, yeah. Now, given how dreadful he is as a batter, I can tell you that ball pinged off it the other day. He mm. was playing in the uh, the 100 Erzatz Roses clash, Manchester Originals against the Northern Superchargers, and he smote some marvellous, completely pointless fours because his side was getting roundly thrashed. <laughs> and if he's batting in a 100-ball game, you know they're getting roundly thrashed. <laughs> but it made a lovely noise off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is my favourite thing about Woodstock as a company is that, you know, companies go and try to buy up the, the biggest names in the world to, to use their bats. Woodstock, go and get bowlers. They're like, why not? <laughs> they're going to have more fun with it <laughs> than, you know, why, why have Chris Gale use your bat when you can have Mark Adair use your bat? You know, why not have Stephen <laughs> Finn? Why not, why not have someone who's going to really relish every single shot that comes out of the middle? So, yeah, woodstockcricket.co.uk. Check them out. The revisits section, look, we're not going to do heaps of revisits on this particular episode because there's a lot happening uh, and sometimes, you know, the revisits situation, it's... it's uh, I work with Adam, he works with me, it's symbiotic, all the rest of it. But there are a couple, there are a couple that I want to look at. The first of which comes from only a few days ago. Uh, Sexy Ryan Thomas, as a matching set with Sexy Ryan Harris, sent through the number 413 earlier in the week. 413 was uh, Sexy Ryan Harris's cap number, but Sexy Ryan Thomas didn't actually know that. He didn't mean that to be the case. It was a beautiful coincidence. And, you know, we talked about 413. We talked about Shane Warne in Sharjah, Jason Holder in Providence. Sexy Ryan Thomas wrote in to say, the 413 was indeed a number that I touched on but didn't go into in depth. Paul Rifle's best one-day international figures. Sexy Ryan Thomas says, for reasons that escape me now, Pistol was my very first favourite cricketer. It must have been the shorts that the Bush Rangers wore in the Mercantile Cup in the 90s. So I did think we should touch back on this 413 that Paul Rifle took. Paul Rifle, in his pomp, flaming ranger, you know, blazing in the midday Australian sun, had a good name that had a pun in it. Everybody loved that. Um, had the underdog story from the Australia A tour where he got called up as 12th man by Mark Taylor to kibosh the Australian A uh, ODI team, even though they weren't ODIs, they were ODs, I guess. But Paul Rifle played 92 one-day games, 35 tests in the end. And on the day when he took his best figures in one-day internationals, 1993 at the SCG, this is a beautiful scorecard, Daniel. Australia bat 50 overs. And they make 172 for nine. Ah, the glory days of 50 over cricket. Woo. You know, disgusting. Oh, uh, yeah. Disgusting stuff. Oh, that is absolutely foul, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's up there with what I was 
growing up with. We used to have 40 over cricket on a Sunday. And if a side got to 152, you go, three points gone over, 3.75 and over. <laughs> That's going to be tricky. <laughs> so, so, so Mark Waugh, um, Audi t- got 36 off 75 that day. Ian Healy, 38 off 60. And how about this? Sports betting enthusiast, Hansi Cronier. One for 14 off 10 overs. Wow. Bowling those horrible dibbly doblies. I mean, <laughs> did no one use their feet in the 1990s? Uh, apparently not. You know what happened with the stick that day? Paul Ronald Rifle, 29 not out with the bat. He hit three boundaries, which was more than anyone that day hit in their innings. No wow. one hit more than three fours. And then, then when the South Africans bat, sports betting enthusiast Hansi Cronier makes 20 which is the top score for South Africa. What would be the odds on that, I wonder? Just Ooh. very interesting to know the odds on that. So Kepler I think Vessels they'd probably throw in a leather jacket as well, wouldn't they, if you got all that right? <laughs> Kepler Vessels makes 19, Hansi makes 20, everybody else makes single figures. They only batted for 28 overs, of which Paul Rifle bowled eight. He took four for 13 and a run out. South Africa bowled out for 69. Nice. Oh, so that what delicious, what a delicious <laughs> score. That is delicious on so many levels, that scorecard. Uh, that is the day that sexy Ryan Thomas was harking back to um, on, on the revisits. Now, we had another one from Rahul who sent me this clue. And as far as clues go that serve it up to me on a plate, there's not a lot uh, more obvious than this. Thank you, Rahul. He said, my nerd pledge number was 211. It is a number which is very much tied to my book, The Comeback Summer. Uh, that's my book, not Raoul's book. But oh, right, you can yeah. take partial credit for mm-hmm. it if he wants. And he says it, it even has a dedicated chapter to it. <laughs> so it didn't take a lot of figuring out to realise that this 211 must be Steve Smith's 211 at Old Trafford. That glorious, batshit crazy innings that he played. Well, the, it was crazier in the second innings, I suppose, when he made the 80, 82, was it? But the 211 had some craziness as well. Well... Was I mean one of the things that was most crazy about the two eleven was, as I'm sure you'll recall, it was the coldest, most inhospitable day at Old Trafford. The first day or two of that Test match, it was as horrible as horrible can be. There was a wind that was measured at over sixty miles an hour at one point. Do you remember the game was stopped for five minutes when a cascade of crisp packets, foreshadowing the hundred, incidentally, oh, yeah. flew across the ground. And um, yeah, you could see the batters, you could see the bats in the batters' hands actually wobbling mm-hmm. in the air as a bowler bowled. And dear old Joffre Archer, who everybody had got like expected to bowl at ninety-four miles an hour, come what may, was being castigated because there was a crosswind that was actually blowing him off his feet. And the ball, unsurprisingly, mm. wasn't coming out at ninety-four miles per hour on that day. It was horrible. <laughs> I've seldom been at a cricket match and actually really not in not enjoyed it but mm. I, I, I smoke as people will probably gather from the voice so whenever I had to nip outside for one it was just horrendous I was just being thrown off my feet and it didn't even have the decency <laughs> to rain it was hellish that day but yeah Steve Smith's 211 was a thing of wonder and beauty my my favourite moment was uh, with that wind when the large uh, large beach ball blew out of the stands in the uh, the permanent temporary stand over on mm. the far side of the ground and, and blew across the pitch and Steve Smith was so much in his batting zone 
that he just knelt down and played a sweep shot to the beach ball <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, 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 and hit it away to the square leg boundary. And, yeah, the old seeing them like a dot, 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 uh, which is the first phrase I would have banned from commentary when I become king, seeing it like a large object. God, yeah, especially so because boring. it's really, so really hard to time. It's very hard to time a beach ball. I mean, a, mm. you must have like been on a beach and played beach cricket and somebody goes, here's a mm-hmm. beach ball, let's play with that. You can't get yeah. any power into it. Nah. It's rubbish. No. Nah. It's actually You're always get caught. what you want to do is you want to see it like a golf ball, but with a mm. big bat, because then it'll go miles. Oh, yeah. Never thought about that. Yeah, the, the, the 211, quite remarkable in that, in his previous match, he'd been smashed in the head and had to retire concussed, missed the next match. It was his second comeback in the series. That was the bizarre part. He'd had the big comeback. You haven't played in 16 months. You've come back at Birmingham. You've made twin tons in your first game back. You've played brilliantly at Lords and then been knocked out. You've missed the next match and you've got to make another comeback. And then on his mm. second comeback, he makes a double ton first time up. It's just one of... It will never cease to boggle the mind how extraordinary that an individual effort that 2019 Ashes was. I think we'll reflect on it more and more as time goes on. So that was the 211 for Rahul. And the last of these, we, we were looking back at this number uh, for Will Cuxon, which was $2.62. And I've had a bunch of guesses at this. We've gone around a few times. We, we haven't quite got there. It had to do with the SCG. And Will was saying it was uh, you know something close to his birthday, which is in early January. And he gave me this clue. He said, the number and the achievement are directly related and the achievement is a timing-related feat. And after after some back and forth, he said, think about it as 26.2. And suddenly the bells went off in my head and I thought, 26.2 overs. 26.2 overs was the point in the first session of a test at Sydney in 2017, when David Warner made a century in a session before lunch on the first oh, day. From the 26.2nd over, if you will. See, that is nerdtastic, isn't it? Because all I could mm. think of was, was Dennis Amos, and I suppose you'd gone through him <laughs> sometime before. And I'm yeah, thinking, how's that working? Everything. Yeah, you've gone through everything. Well, 26.2 overs when Warner gets... So that is, that's proper nerd, that is. Mm. I take my hat, my coat... And uh, probably most of my garments. I rend my yep. garments off at I, that. <laughs> I take my pants off to you, sir. I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> they clean on today, so it's very rare for me to do that. <laughs> um, because I knew it was time-related and at the SCG, so I was looking at timing of innings. Mark War batted for 262 minutes at the SCG in 1995, that sort of thing. <laughs> but, um, but, I knew, but it was supposed to be recent, and so eventually we've got this. Now, 26.2 overs, that's when David Warner got bowled 26.2 overs of absolute filth outside his off stump by Pakistan. They just kept bowling short and wide for some reason, and he kept cutting them for four. It wasn't a crazy rampaging first session. He just hit every ball for four that deserved to be hit for four, and as it happened, that got him about 110 runs by <laughs> lunchtime. But he became the fifth man in test cricket to score 100 before lunch on the first day of a test. I, I suspect this is the sort of thing you might know. Well, I was, I, I was sort of thinking, I don't know, I, I've got a strange recollection in the back of my mind of like either Trumper or McCartney or both or either. Would I be right? Some of them... Yep. Yep, yeah. you'd be right with both of them. Trumper, McCartney, they're the first two. 
Bradman the third, Majid Khan for Pakistan Majid against New Khan. Zealand. Yeah, he's the, he's the Smokey in seventy six yeah. seventy seven, and then Warner was the fifth, um, and then a couple of years later, Shikhar Dawan did the same against Afghanistan in their first ever test match, made 100 in the first session. So six all up who've done it, and Dee Warner was one of those. Uh, that is the revisit for Will Cuxon. Are those all your revisits? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, that's okay. all we're doing today. Well, in that case, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you one last batting failure stat because I didn't mention this while I was going through the, the story of Ed Giddens because it mm-hmm. clearly wasn't to do with Ed Giddens, but I discovered while meandering around the Ed Giddens story, mm-hmm. a man that I'd, I'd sort of been dimly conscious of but had forgotten, a man called Sam Cooke. <laughs> not, not as in, not you the know, singer. it's a wonderful life for Sam Cooke yep. today. No, his real name was Cecil, but he was known as Sam Cooke. Mm-hmm. And he played one test match in his entire life. It was against South Africa in 1947. But what he's most famous for, I say famous... What he should be most famous for is that he has the most number of pairs in first-class cricket. Mm-hmm. So, two ducks. 18 times he got pairs in first-class cricket. Isn't that magnificent? He ended up with an 18. average of five points. I know. Yeah. He got, he got nearly went through a first-class career. He got, he got tantalisingly close to having more wickets than runs in a first-class career, which is very tricky to do when you've played as many games as him. Because he actually batted 612 times, scored 1,965 runs at an average of 5.41, with a highest score Mm. of 35, not out. Cruelly robbed, 65 short of his maiden 100. He took 1,782 wickets at an average of 20.52. So handy bowler, handy bowler, slow left arm, I think. Oh, yeah. But he only played the one test. And in that one test, he took naught for 127, which is a tragedy. But he also... And I love this. He finished his career on 99 fifers. 99 fifers. You know, (laughs) I just want to celebrate Sam Cecil Cook today, the holder of the most pairs of first-class cricket who left cricket with 99 fifers. Good gracious. And no wickets in test cricket. Imagine making 36 ducks and they were in 18 games. (laughs) (laughs) I dare say he got plenty of other ducks. But, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, here's to Sam Cook, who did have a wonderful life. Thank you, Daniel. What a wonderful life it could be. Uh, A couple of confirmations. James Rodder wrote in, this is not quite a confirmation, but his 641 that we looked at uh, the other week, he said... He was intending us to look at Sean Tate taking 6-41 in the ING Cup final at the Adelaide Oval, but we had already talked about that game at some time a few shows earlier, so he was very happy that we went to Ajit Agoko taking 6-41 in a test at the same venue. Pete says, it was a while ago now, but to confirm you got it, my nerd pledge of $5.96 was for the 596 deliveries bowled by Rashid Khan in the Afghanistan test against Zimbabwe. That's a nerd pledge. That's quality. Now, this also isn't a confirmation, but Glenn Finkeld's uh, $3.02 in which he said it had something to do with an Arthurian legend. This was a match in which Lance Cairns played. Jeremy Nash wrote in and said, my ears pricked up when this got mentioned. I remember Lance Cairns coming to England and batting with a shoulderless bat called Excalibur. Hence That's the correct. Clue about the Arthurian legend, you remember that? I do remember that. I remember it was an incredible. He came in. I think it was be 
82, 82 or 83, I should remember. And uh, he was dropped a dolly by, um, by David Gower at, uh, at Square Leg. And they did a montage at the end of the series to Elton John, John's sorry seems to be the hardest word, in which they basically put in a whole bunch of incredibly bad drops in that series. But Lance Cairns' mm-hmm. Excalibur Bat, I yearned for it. I mean, it just... And it was. It was shoulderless. It, it was like it had a V shape going up, you know, up into the handle. I have no idea what the biomechanics of that were all about. Biomechanics? Just Nothing. mechanics. I don't think it's, the, I don't think it's the, alive, is it? Yeah. The inventor... The inventor of the bat said they invented it because they had a bat with a, a knot of wood in one shoulder which was going to split and so they shaved it off and then they oh, thought right. people might buy this because it looks cool. <laughs> there was no benefit to it whatsoever except well, I suppose you couldn't you probably get caught off the shoulder. You couldn't get caught off the shoulder, yeah, which yeah. actually thinking about it's not a bad call because you don't want to hit the mm-hmm. ball on the shoulder mm-hmm. of the bat so why not just remove the shoulder of the bat? <laughs> so Jeremy Nash uh, helped solve that one for Glenn Finkeld. Uh, Dara O'Donovan, our uh, beloved Irish correspondent, says that his eight dollar seventy five was indeed Samuel Beckett's first class batting average. Uh, Dara, Dara says, I did the Lord's ground tour many years ago and the guide liked to have an obscure cricket stat relating to where everyone on the tour came from. Being Irish, I was given the only Nobel Prize winner to play first-class cricket and it's stuck in my mind ever since. Uh, and the last one from Evan Granger. Now, this was a beauty. This was uh, the $4.01 that Evan Granger had sent in. Uh, which we finally got to the bottom of. He says, Adam, you've bloody well done it. A real buzz. Indeed, it did refer to Roger Douglas Woolley with a first-class average of 40.1. At test level, a victim of poor timing was the clue because he was a wicketkeeper during the Rod Marsh years. Um, And he's the answer to the question of who is the only other wicketkeeper to take a catch off Dennis Lilly. Also, says Evan, coincidental that Uncle Rod Marsh was referenced earlier in the same episode. He was, for other reasons. Uh, A funny old thing, cricket. At first-class level, Douglas, Roger Douglas Woolley, was uh, one of the pioneers as a member of Tasmania's early years in The Shield. Thank you, Evan, for explaining the clues to us, and uh, thank you for all the confirmations. Thank you to everyone who has sent in a number. Without you, this show would not exist. Without you, the whole final word thing would not exist because this is how we make it happen. So if you want to send a nerd pledge and get involved, patreon.com slash the final word. Thanks to uh, Brick Lane for sponsoring the show and Woodstock Cricket as well. Thanks to everyone who supports it. This show goes out on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. It's edited by Dave Collins. And a special thanks to Daniel Norcross for filling in today and earlier in the week. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you, D.N., Oh, Jeffrey. Well, you know how much I miss you all, especially my chums down in Australia. Who knows when I'm going to get to see you? But sending my thoughts and love, I see that the uh, the lockdowns continue. But you mercifully, you you lucky people, you have Jeff and Collo to listen to. They'll never let you down. They'll be there come rain or shine, come curfew or, or I don't know, rave. I don't know how it works. <laughs> but yes, it's been a joy. It's been lovely. And it's great to see your face again, apart from anything else. And Thank you to the crazy nerd pledges. I really do want to find out if not, if I crack nine oh four. I really mm-hmm. do want to find out, and if I and if it isn't right, I actually do want to find out what was right because I <laughs> I moved heaven and earth for that. <laughs> Chris Arkell will be in touch. I'm very confident about that. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. This has been the final word. Story time. 
We'll be back with the weekly show next Wednesday. Uh, story time on the weekends and the dailies once the third test starts from Leeds. See you then. I had to go about it.